Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am joined by Jamel Hill, writer for The Atlantic, former ESPN host and analyst, and the host and creator of the podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, which focuses on culture and politics in addition to, of course, sports. If you don't know her, Jamel is basically the first woman of sports, and she is someone whose work I have admired from afar for years. Jamel has a brand new book out, and it's called Uphill. It's a powerful memoir about her life of resilience following cycles of generational trauma, about her professional setbacks and public scandals. And today we talk about what it means to be a black woman in sports, writing a memoir when you have a bad memory, and some of the biggest sports stories of Jamel's life. Remember, our November book club selection is Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms by journalists Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. We will discuss the book on November 30th with our guest, Mariam Kaba. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love the show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. The Stacks is an independent podcast, which means I rely on listeners like you to make the show possible week in and week out. In addition to knowing that you're supporting one of your favorite podcasts, you also get perks like our monthly virtual book club, bonus episodes, access to our Discord, and more. If you'd like to be a part of this wonderful bookish community, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. Thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Kurin, Tanya Jagernoth, Leah Kramer, Cheryl O'Toole, and Dave Dandelion. Thank you all so much. And thank you, of course, to the entire Stacks Pack. And now it's time for my conversation with Jamel Hill. All right, everyone. I am beyond thrilled today. I am joined by someone that I admire for her work and her talent and someone who wrote a shockingly great celebrity memoir. I mean, I don't know if you'd call it that, but I call it that. It's sort of in between. Anyways, it's Jamel Hill, author of Uphill. Jamel, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. And I'm, I, of course, being a writer, I pay attention to words. Shockingly yeah. good is what you said. <laughs> well, because like, listen, I read these celebrity type memoirs a lot and not everyone is a writer. So usually I just go in and I'm like, let's see what's going on. And in like the first paragraph or like the first page, I was like, 
oh, okay, we're going to do this. And I was like (laughs) super geeked about it. So I guess I shouldn't have been shocked because I follow you and I follow your work, but I, you know, yeah. It's always a pleasant surprise. <laughs> I get it. Um, but I'm also a writer by trade. I'm not a celebrity by trade. Right. <laughs> so it is. A, right. That's, I know. I should different. have known. <laughs> I should have known it was going to be good. Anyways. Okay. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell folks about your book? So the title of the book is called Uphill, a memoir. And it's my personal story. And what I was kind of locked in on was general generational trauma and explaining how the generational trauma in my own family had shaped me into the person I, I that I am today. So it's a story of resiliency, resolve, perseverance, but I think it's also a story about how we cannot let shame define us or really we, we shouldn't be ashamed at all, but we especially shouldn't mm-hmm. let shame nor circumstances define us. Something that you say early on that's like something, a principle that's guided you in your work and in your life is uh, to, or mostly in your work, I guess, is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And that stuck out to me from jump. And I'm curious how you use that as a guiding principle. Like how, how do you check if you're doing it? Well, being a journalist by trade, when I was kind of growing up in this business, if you will, that was a phrase that was repeated often. You know, there was these certain principles, these core values that the profession was supposed to be about. I mean, this is not to say that every journalist is noble, but a lot of journalists were attracted to the profession for noble reasons. You know, mm-hmm. we there was no promise of fame or that you'd make a lot of money. You were literally doing it because you thought that it was important that our society have checks and balances, that there'd be a group of people Uh, that were able to hold the people in power accountable, able to make sure that the citizens' voices were heard. And it's an important and crucial element to having a democracy and a free press. And so that has been such a guiding career principle for me um, because we need to challenge systems and structures. Otherwise, we see what happens when they go unchecked. Yeah. You start the book as you start your life as a child, uh, well, you actually start the book talking about with your mom as an adult, but then we kind of get into your life as a child and, and some of the things that you went through um, and the relation, the com- complex relationships you have with your family members. And, you know, I think most of us know you from from the sports world, from being a journalist, from ESPN, from your podcast. How did it feel to commit these words and these stories to the page like and and in a book and in one place because you know like sometimes you might hear one of the stories on your podcast here and there but like it's all here it's all together like how did you get the confidence and and the courage to tell this story Uh, I think I've always shown a kind of confidence and courageousness in writing that maybe I have not shown in real life particularly as it relates to exposing myself and being vulnerable. And from a child, since I was a child, rather, that was always easy. It was always easier to write it than to say it. And sometimes easier to write it than to do it. And so I knew that considering a memoir is like a, a, almost like a personal statement, but much, much longer. Yeah. You, you want that statement to be as honest and as raw and as vulnerable as possible because, uh, you know, I, I think this as an interviewer sitting down with subjects, the ones I believe are the ones that are willing to be transparent. And so considering how I respond to that as a journalist, when I'm sitting with a subject, I, there was just no way I was going to write this and not be brutally honest and not expose certain truths and expose certain 
um, complicated dynamics within my family because, it, it, you know, when you pick up a celebrity memoir, like I, I was, you know, playfully ribbing yeah. you a little bit. But I, you know, the gist of the game, especially if, if the celebrity is writing it, is that they're in some ways trying to make themselves look as good as possible. Right, right, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. So it, it just, I, I felt like people would learn more almost from the warts than they did from the smoother parts of my life. And so I didn't want to put readers in a position where they felt cheated. Yeah. Did you, did you ever struggle like when you were telling a story and, and look back and go, you know what, Jamal, that's, that's, you're, you're being too nice to yourself or like you're, you're sugarcoating this or did anybody else read it and say to you like, "Um, there's more there? Well, you know what? It's funny because uh, so the the book editor who wound up um, doing most of this, I had two book editors. One, okay. uh, she uh, she kind of started the process with me, but she wound up leaving the company. But she said something to me that was really interesting when I was writing about after I turned in submitted the, the first draft, and she wrote or in an email she said this to me is that when it, when I was writing about my stepfather James she thought I was actually being really unfair to him hmm. and she's like I she didn't use the word unfair what she said was I noticed that everybody else you're willing to give a lot more grace but him hmm. you should ask yourself why that is and then write about it as a part of how you want to describe your relationship and i guess that was a really good seed for her to plant because it made me then go back and think about the people I'd written about and say, am I being fair to this person? And everybody doesn't deserve grace. But one thing is for sure is that everybody does deserve fairness, right? And so uh, that's why I think it's an important um, journalistic principle to have in general. But I was like, oh, everybody does deserve some fairness. So I just went back and combed through again to make sure everybody I was writing with, I wrote about them with a sense of fairness. Did you have to prep anyone in your life about what you were going to say about them in the book or talk about? Or was this stuff that you'd already sort of hashed out with your loved ones? Oh, I had to talk to my mother about it just because, you know, needing to understand that what was going to be in the book. Um, I didn't, you know, fill her in on this is how I'm writing it about it. Right. This is my perspective. I didn't I didn't go through it like that. I just wanted her to know this right. incident will be in here. This one will be in here. This will be in here. She read mm. um, a very early copy, like an advanced reader copy of the book while it was still being edited. So it was, you know, an opportunity that if she took issue with something, it could be changed. And because I because I write so extensively about her, I thought that was the least I owed her. Of, um, of course, uh, you know, my husband read an early copy of the book, too, because I did not want him to be surprised by anything. And while, um, you know, generally he knows um, everything about me, it's like sometimes you never quite remember. It's like, did I tell him this? Or right, did, right. Know, just... Or you, you know, he may know, he may know the, the general headline, but mm-hmm. maybe not the whole story, you know. And so, um, it, you know, there's a difference between telling somebody that, oh, you know, my mother and father were both addicts to let me tell you about the time this happened. So I wanted right. to make sure that, you know, he knew and was comfortable with everything that was going to be uh, in there. And um, probably, let's see, the other the only other person I talked to um well, it was a couple. It was a couple of people I talked to, um, some of which I can't name because they told me stories, and I don't okay. <laughs> where they are professionally. I don't don't want to compromise them. But Got it. 
uh, just some colleagues of mine that used to be at ESPN about certain things that happened there because I wanted to make sure I remembered it the right way. I was like, this did happen this way, right? I'm not tripping, okay? And so they were able to, you know, help me verify some things. And uh, my former co-host, Michael Smith, while he didn't read any advanced copy, but there was an incident that I wrote about in the book that I know was a sensitive one for him. Um, you know, an issue he had with a colleague that right. became a very national story. And so I wanted to just say like, Hey, I remember it happening this way. It was this way that it happened. And by the way, I'm writing about this. And and so if, if you feel a way, then tell me you feel a way. And, and he didn't, he was, he was fine about it. But so it was, it was a few conversations, but there's some people that I frankly didn't feel the need to have to let them in on the process. And, you know, writers, as you know, we're protective about our shit. Right. <laughs> we are. And so you don't want to put yourself in the position where people feel like they have a say. Right. Right. You know, it's it's a fine line. Like the people that are close to you, like really, really close. Like if my husband saw that I wrote about something, it was like, I don't know about that one. If it was in any way going to embarrass him or not be protective of our relationship. Okay. That's another matter. But, right. you know, you start letting, letting people play editor. And they think yeah. the story changes. And they so do. Have, <laughs> exactly. Then they want to like chime in with an opinion. Like, eh, I didn't ask yeah. for your opinion. I just want to know, is this right or or not? My right. perspective is my perspective. Just factually, am I getting everything right here? It's interesting that you say that because I obviously do talk to a lot of writers and I love a memoir. So I have a lot of memoirists on the show. And it the scope of like I didn't show anyone and I told no one anything to kind of what you're saying is has been really interesting because I think maybe because I'm just so nervous. I'm like, I want to make sure everyone's happy. Um, no, you can never write a memoir with that no. idea because somebody right. is not going to be happy. Yeah. And um, if you have a story worth telling, there's going to yeah. be some conflict. If, if you get 100 percent approval from everybody, you did not write the right memoir. Right. You know? And right. so uh, and that's not to say that you write things purposely to piss people off. But there's going to be people who feel like they should have been characterized different or you know they just will feel uncomfortable about the fact that now they really know how you feel and so you have to be prepared for some conflict and some fallout which I certainly am (laughs) yeah yeah one of the things you talk about in the book is how it's kind of like an offhanded comment but it piqued my interest about how you have not a great uh, memory. You don't remember anything is what you said. Uh, and you <laughs> said, I think, I think like Michael remembered everything and like every play and every this and that. And yeah. as a sports fan, I joke that I don't remember any sporting anything. Like I cannot, like I, last year I went to a World Series game and I was just saying to my husband, I cannot tell you anything that happened in the game that we went to. And it was my first and only time at the World Series. Like, and it was like a big deal and I traveled and all this stuff. And I'm like, I, I just know we lost. I don't remember anything else. But I'm wondering how you navigate that because you're talking about all these little sporting events. And also, how do you write this book? What did you <laughs> rely on to remember everything? Uh, I, you know, I would say... I have a memory for useless things. Okay. Okay. It's like, why do I remember that? I don't even know. But I think when it comes to thinking about critical joints and and junctures in your life, you remember those. And one of the best pieces of advice I got for as I was writing this memoir was from Rick Ross. And Rick Ross was working on his memoir when I interviewed him for the podcast. And he said that it was a good idea to kind of narrow your life down to 12 to 16 pivotal moments and Mm. organize it like that. And 
I can easily think of those moments. Right. And but, you know, it was funny because as as this book is, you know, be, being read and people are responding to it, a childhood friend of mine, she reached out to me and she lived a couple doors down from my grandmother. And she was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm so proud of you. And as my mother and I, we uh, we appeared on Red Table Talk and she saw the episode and she just thought about how proud of me she was. She was like, yeah, I remember when you used to spend the night over, you know, my house. You were like the only kid that was allowed to because my mother really liked you and. You know, you and I would talk about some of the issues you were having with your mom. And I was like, we did? I was, I did not remember that at all. I was like, well, what was I saying? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, you know, it was just like, oh, okay. But it also helped that I still have a lot of my old journals as well from, you know, when I was kind of coming of age. And even though that I wasn't, sometimes I wasn't very specific, you know, I, I would just look at the timestamp. And I might I might have something as simple of an entry of, oh, I was really pissed off today when such and such didn't look at me in the hallway. And I was thinking, like, who is such and such? Like, I don't even know what this <laughs> is. But, you know, it sort of helped me tap into what were the emotions that were boiling inside of me as a right. kid. And even one of the stories that I tell in the memoir about how my mother read my journal and then when she found the contents of it, which were not very nice <sighs> to her... You know how she, you know, beat the shit out of me, basically. Even when I wrote about that, when I talked to my mother about that incident, and we were laughing about it as we were talking about right. it. So it was really a happy conversation because, you know, you laugh about ass whoopings much, much later. Yeah. Not in the moment. <laughs> not at but the she, time. Not at the time. Not real, not real funny. Not comedic at the time. No. But anyway, she told me some things I said to her in the course of that argument, if you want to call it that. That I do not remember saying that I was like, ooh, I see why you whoop my ass. Like I kind of so it. funny. So yeah, even though I can't recall everything in in detail, it's like the major things I knew and felt pretty comfortable with. And even uh, being able to go and ask my mother about it, or even like one of my friends Kelly, who remembers everything. I was like, um, remember when that happened? Is this how it happened? I at least had uh, the ability to do that with a few people as I was writing this. Right. That's so interesting. I, I have a great memory for everything but sports. So it's interesting to think about writing a mem like hear about well, you writing a memoir. <laughs> you, I'm, I'm sure you might remember moments like you may not remember maybe how, you know, things happen, but you remember moments like I, you. Yeah. I'm sure you remember every one of Golden State championships. That they won. So recently. I do. But like so, for example, last night I said to my husband, I go, who did we beat last year for the championship? I was like. I, did we play someone or they just let us have it? Like I couldn't. And then I, it dawned on me the that it was Celtics. Boston. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's like one of those things, I think, because I remember like every little thing from every conversation with everyone I know. And then I think sports, I'm just like rooting and cheering. And like, <laughs> I, it's just such, it's a very weird, because I'm like known, I'm like your friend Kelly. I'm known for my memory. It's like what happened. And I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. this is what happened. This is what you were wearing. This is the day of the week. This is the day, like, you know. Um, okay. You talk about the O.J. Simpson case as being this pivotal moment for you in your professional career. You wrote like one of your early pieces about it. I'm wondering, how do you feel like seeing the country through the lens of O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown maybe changed you as a writer, or storyteller or just as a young woman? Well, I mean, it had such a profound impact on my professional career. I'll start there first, just because... You know, I mean, people today will not know what this is like because I, God, I cannot imagine if a OJ Simpson happens with Twitter. With, with Twitter, oh, 
Oh, it, it would my just God. be it's un, you know it's, it's unimaginable. One of, even now, thinking about it, one of those y- y'all had to be there, you know, right, to, right. to remember when, I guess, speaking of sports, when they broke into the NBA game to right. show OJ in the Bronco and yeah. everybody thought he was literally going to commit suicide on national TV. Like it was, right. it was real. Right. So that case was when I think it, it, it took journalism to, uh, to an interesting place. Uh, one, it, it was the type of blanket coverage that, was pretty rare. I mean, it, it happened. Certainly there were national incidents, but it, it showed, I mean, it kind of ushered in the 24 hour news cycle. It definitely ushered in our complete addiction to true crime. Right. Um, yeah. To, and to trials in particular, because after that, the, you know, showing trials became a thing right? because right. of the OJ Simpson case and the ratings were just outstanding. And, I remember being at college when the verdict was read and everybody in our newsroom and in our college uh, at our college newspaper being gathered around waiting on this verdict. And I was managing editor then. So it was my um, I was the one deciding what the front page was going to look like, how many stories we're going to dedicate to it and all of that. So professionally, it's just much more easier to remember. But then on a personal level, obviously, as I write about. One of the reasons as that case was unfolding that I wrote a extensive series on domestic violence is because my dear play aunt was, a, you know, brutalized, you know, was a victim of, of domestic violence. And it was a very frightening to see her go through that. Um, she was never OK. And it was um, it, it was really one of those early examples of how I saw that you can bring situations to light that are of massive importance to the society through a personal lens, even though I didn't, I didn't write about my aunt in that story at Mm -hmm. all, but knowing what she went through and some of the obstacles she was facing informed my reporting. So it was like the first major piece of journalistic work I did in my career. Hmm. Do you, I guess this is sort of connected because I think one of the things that makes you, I think, an important figure, if you will, in society is that you are a black woman who is in the center of the sports world in some ways and also in a world that is notorious for hating women and hating black people in a lot of ways. And like, there's this dichotomy of like, Jamel Hill is who I look to for my sports things. But also, Jamel Hill is receiving like blowback because of the optics of who you are. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you balance And push through and negotiate being a black woman in a white man's space that is filled with black and brown people of color who are the athletes and are the face of this industry, which is I don't even know if that's a clear question, but no, I know I know what you're getting at. But there is a parallel example, I think. And I would say probably black women's relationship with hip hop would be a pretty close parallel. Sure. Yeah, I mean, we all love it. Um, we're huge buyers of it. You know, the men, of, I'll just leave it to them. The men who are, you know, male rappers, they, a lot of what they decide to rap about topic matter comes from our response to it. Now, we know that lyrics can be very misogynistic, downright 
crude toward us. And yet we still love it. And sometimes it does take a cost on us um, or take a toll on us to wager, you know, because sometimes we, we can certainly disassociate the music and see it as purely entertainment. But then there's also, I think, in all of us, if we're being truthfully honest, a part of us that feels um, humiliated by it mm-hmm. in some ways. And so with sports, it's similar in the sense that a lot of times when you watch sports, you're sort of wagering your integrity. And right. it, 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 and it's, it, it, it sucks because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't think about these things. Like, you know, when I was growing up and watching sports, I did not think about what kind of person an athlete was or how did they treat their family or, you know, I didn't worry about their character or the integrity. I only worried about that in relationship to their availability and whether or not they can play. Right. Uh, that was, right. yeah, that was it. And so something like what happened to Colin Kaepernick, I'm, I'm a 49ers fan. You're As a 49ers fan. Yes. Right. And even though the team itself did not put him out of the NFL they were complicit in his career being taken mm-hmm. from him. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, I mean, for a, for a while, I didn't really feel good about watching them because of that. Same. Like this kind I of... I haven't fully gone back to football. I yeah. haven't been able to. I was at his first uh, NFL start. That's a sporting event I remember. See, you do remember Against stuff. the Chicago <laughs> Bears. It was, that was like a pivotal moment in my life because I was like, my quarterback is half black and so am I. And like, <laughs> it's Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. So I find myself like sort of thinking about these things in especially now that I'm, um, you know, you're at an age where you do care more about how certain things make you feel. But what I've told myself in terms of my participation in sports and me watching it, I mean, I'm very entertained by sports. There's no doubt about it. But what I've told myself is this. My job for The Atlantic as a writer is to write about the intersection between race, sports, politics, gender, culture with sports. I can't write about that unless I watch it. Right. (laughs) Okay. And somebody has to be watching it in order to do what I said earlier, hold the powers that be accountable. I need to be the writer reminding the NFL what they did to Colin Kaepernick. I need to be the writer reminding the NFL about the race norming that they willingly engaged in until recently about concussions, about how they do everything to usurp, undermine um, players' power. Um, I need to be the writer to do that. And to do that, I have to understand how the league works. So, right. you know, my participation is professional, to, uh, but it's also, I also, the other part too that I think about is when it comes to uh, the players themselves and they're the labor um, and they put, they put so much work and effort into being a professional and they have committed themselves to this dream, sacrificed a lot. And what it's given them back is changing their changing entire generations of their family because of the money mm-hmm. they're, they're able to make because of, you know, how they're maybe able to live a much different life than they thought they would live. It's given them so many good things. And I feel like, even if there's, even if often sports flirts with, if not crosses the line into exploitation, the players deserve support. They, yeah. They've done what the, they deserve to have support. Yeah. I'm trying to decide where I want to go from here. <laughs> I feel like that's just like such a salient point. You know what? We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay. I want to talk about sports journalism. I am, as I mentioned, a sports fan. I love sports journalism. You talk about a bunch of people in your book that are people I've been fans of, like Sally Jenkins, Michael Wilbon. I'm a Tony Kornheiser fan. He's how I got into podcasting, listening to his radio show for years, though I don't listen anymore. But that's a different story. I want to know, so you were a sports news reporter. Then you went to becoming a sports columnist. I'd love for you just to explain to people who maybe aren't like super into sports or journalism, kind of what the difference of those two jobs are. Well, as a as a sports reporter, it's more of a nuts and bolts job in the sense of something happens, you report on what happened, why it happened, you talk to people, you turn out the story. If you're covering a team, as I did for six years, you are covering the ins and outs of that team. Uh, who's injured? Who's hurt? What's the team outlook? Why did they lose this game? Why did this player start? Why didn't that player start? 
you know, who are they recruiting? Like all, all different types of storylines that are associated with how this team exists. And you you don't opine on anything. So you're not. Right. Yeah, you're not. Um, everything is like fact based or even if you have a theory about why something isn't working, you find some evidence that can support your theory. Right. So it's it's very reported. It's very it should be pretty unbiased and, um, and and always, of course, fair. Now, when you're a columnist, this is when you are taking the liberty to, uh, you know, generate your own opinion about what is right or wrong with this team. Is this player good or not? Like you're you're taking a stance about something. So the nature of it is much more personal because when you're writing for a newspaper and your picture is next to your opinion, <laughs> right? people are going to begin to um, attack you when they don't like something. You know, if you write that the Lakers are horrible, which they kind of are right now. They are. After four <laughs> games, they're the worst. Or five, four. They, they four. are. They are. They actually, <laughs> I mean, this is one of the, one of the worst four, only four teams I've seen. That's for yeah. sure. They don't, they good. don't, they, they don't look good. And, but, you know, if you're a columnist writing for uh, the L.A. Times, you have to be truthful about that and say this team is very poorly constructed. They're more yeah. than likely not going to even come close to challenging the Warriors for the West or, frankly, any of the other echelon teams. Right. And, the, you know, you have your opinion, but, you know, you do support it with facts. The proof is in knowing that they don't really have any three-point shooters in a game that is now predicated on three-point right. shooting. We know what's going on with Russell Westbrook. So these are the things you know, you, you write and pontificate about. But bottom line, one is opinion-based. One is just, you know, just by the, uh, just the facts, ma'am. Right. And how do you, this is, this is a nosy question. How do you uh, cultivate sources? How, like, who are you talking <laughs> to? You don't have to give away any sources, but like, who are sources? Are they players? Are they front office? Like, how are you, and how do you get them to trust you enough to do it? Because different Journalists have different sources. Oh, yeah. And sometimes a bunch of journalists have the same source. And by the way, in certain circles, I can tell exactly, like, I can tell based off the story with some reporters exactly who told them. I know exactly <laughs> who did. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like such and such. Yeah, mm -hmm. I knew it. So um, it, it's a constant, you know, being able to develop sources is, is like a constant practice. You know, um, I remember when... I first uh, started covering Michigan State football and basketball. And even though I had gone to school at Michigan State, um, which was an advantage for me, so I knew the terrain. I knew a lot of – I had you know, gone to Michigan State, and I also had covered sports when I worked for the college newspaper. So some of the people that I met then were still there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you start taking folks out to lunch. Who does not like a free meal? <laughs> okay, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you take people out to lunch. And, you know, one of the many tricks, so to speak, that veteran journalists taught me is that you begin to chit chat with people and talk to people when you don't need them. So that mm. way, when you do need them, they won't feel like you only come around or you only talk to me when you need something. Mm. So, sneaky. yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> listen, it's a ton of sneaky reporter trips. So there are many times where um, and this more it has to do with professional locker rooms where you. You go in the locker room and, you know, just to give people a better insight of how the access works, access works, depending on what sports you are covering. Like in the NBA, I think the locker room is open like 45 minutes 
um, something like an hour to 45 minutes before the game. So that's your opportunity as a writer to go in there, talk to guys, you know, just kind of get a feel of the mood and all this other kind of stuff. And usually that's when it's called, uh, unless you have to have a, a, a deadline story, it's shoot the shit time. Like I remember in Orlando when I was the columnist there, one of the players that I got a pretty had a pretty good relationship with was Keon Dooling. The reason we had a good relationship is because we were shooting the shit during that pre-game locker room time. And it turns out we had something very interesting in common. We were both fans of Young and the Restless. So we would be talking about <laughs> what was going on on Young and the Restless like all the time. I don't even remember how I this even came up. I mean, I think it just came up in a conversation during shoot the shit time. And I was like, oh, you watch YNR? What you think about Sharon when she did exit? <laughs> And so every time I would see him after that, I'd be like, yo, did you see Thursday's episode? What? You know? Right. But then when I needed something, when I needed a quote from him about something going on with the team, always willing to talk. Because right. I had established that rapport. And a lot of times, let's just say dissenting voices on the team make for great sources. Now, you have to keep in mind they have an agenda when they're doing this. Like if there's a guy who wants more playing time... He may tell you things about the starter, about like, yeah, but they ain't tell you about how he missed practice to, you know, a couple mm. weeks ago with no excuse. Yeah, they haters, but use them to your advantage. Okay, it's, it's fine, right? Yeah. Or uh, assistant coaches make great sources because they're not the head coach. So right. they don't really take any of the blame for anything. So they'll give you the insight on the team. Backup quarterbacks, they make great sources because they're backups. And they right. see all the dynamics that are happening on the team. You know, people, um, you know, and sometimes sources, they they try to woo you because they want a particular story planted in, in, in the media. Right. You know, um, uh, my friend Tom Izzo, the coach of Michigan State, yeah. he was really good at this, is that when he was upset with his team and he really wanted them to respond to something, he wanted to challenge them, he had a way of planting within a narrative that, the team wasn't working hard enough or, you know, they were soft or, you know, that he mm. thought that they should be tougher. Had a great way of doing that. He would plan it with us when he was just talking to the beat writers and, you know, none of us were really writing anything. He's just shooting the shit. And then if they lose and one of us writes like, oh, Izzo's, you know, the, the, huh. the toughness is a question, blah, 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 blah. And then as soon as that story is written or that column's written, He'd come to the podium and be like, how dare anyone question my team and their toughness? Right. And you're like, but you said, okay. And then he uses that to create a us versus them to get them to play harder because he's like, look, they're doubting you. They don't right. think you're tough enough and this and that. And we're like, man, this dude, yeah. media 101. I love <laughs> it. I love it. It's so manipulative in the best way. I feel like it the is. best managers and coaches do that though, right? Like they are constantly trying to figure out how do I get that extra something yeah. from this player trying this to team. figure out how to push the team who else makes excellent sources by the way are support staff team managers administrative mm -hmm. assistants you know people that's why I made it a point when I um covered a beat to know everybody's name in the football office or everybody's name in the basketball office so that you know you never know what tidbit you could use for something it doesn't always have to be nefarious or bad but just something that might lead to you writing a good story yeah, 
Um, I I love that. I my other dream job is to be a journalist, though I have no interest in actually being a journalist. I just love journalists and I love stories from journalists and all of these things. I just love being on the inside, you know. So one of the things you talked about once you go to TV. So you're a journalist. You're you start like in high school. You're writing college right out of college. You're writing. You're reporting. You're hustling. You're moving around the country. You're hitting up these different you know newspapers. Working your way up. You get to ESPN. Eventually, you get on television. I don't want to spend too much time on television or Donald Trump or any of those things because I feel like that's what a lot of people know about you. And I think you're probably doing a lot of that on your press tour. So go listen to Jamel on other things. What I'm really curious about that you mentioned is that you said TV turned you into a girl. And you talked about <laughs> how you were a tomboy and you like weren't into those things. You were like, you know, you go on TV and you're like, can people tell this is from Marshalls? Like these shoes are just like hand-me-downs from so-and-so. <laughs> I don't know shit about makeup. Like I think it was Sage Steele is like telling you like, girl, you're looking pasty, like with her face in the background. I am so curious what you think about, could you have found the success that you found on television if you had stayed in your tomboy ways given the time that you were coming up on TV at ESPN? So I don't want to say all of that hinged on it, but as, you know, I wrote about in the book about how I hired an image consultant, um, a friend of mine, uh, Erica, because she had been a longtime TV veteran. She was sort of transitioning out of the business. And so she had the size, uh, side business of, of image consulting, and not just for TV people, but for people in the professional world, period. And... She was very instrumental in me understanding that while you could sound really great and you could make salient points and have cohesive sound arguments about a variety of topics, you have to look the part. Mm -hmm. And there is a TV look mm -hmm. that is widely acceptable and that people um, are comfortable with and you have to fit within the scope of that. And so I'm not saying that I would have you know, never been on TV again. But yeah, I think there is some question to whether or not if I hadn't sort of looked apart, like what would that have meant for me? Um, because you have to, even though it sounds horribly superficial, I, I do, maybe not in the same way, maybe not with the same intensity, but, you know, I, I don't know that they're going to let a man you know, be on TV all that much if they're always wearing wrinkled clothing. <laughs> you know what right. I'm saying? But it's they like do point. let them on with those oversized suits and those giant tie yes. knots. I'm I mean, like, they're, what's going on, sports? What is the giant tie knot? Why? Why? They're not. They're not <laughs> nearly as scrutinized as heavy right. as women are. So I don't. I don't want people to think I'm making a false equivalency. <laughs> no, I am not. not. Of course, because not. there's plenty of things that men can get away with on TV from an appearance standpoint that women absolutely couldn't. But you know, there is they, they do want you to look polished because the fact is that when you're delivering the news, delivering an opinion on TV, people are buying into who they think you are as much as they're buying into what you say. So, I mean, I had to upgrade. I mean, it's just that simple. It's like um, I had to reshape my look in a way, like make it a, a little softer. I mean, I had to do it in a way that was comfortable for me. So I still felt myself, but yet willing to grow and change to do something that I loved. And so I didn't really see it as me sacrificing any part of myself because they were just aesthetic changes and they weren't really, I think, that outrageous. It's like, okay, so, 
you know, making sure I wore accessories and because uh, Erica was always on me about wearing accessories. She got me out of um, wearing black to every television appearance. Mm. She was like, no, <laughs> these colors really pop on TV. I mean, these are just sort of little things and tricks that at the end of the day are going to make you look good and make you better at selling yourself to the American public. Hmm. So interesting. I, I, it made me think about all the other women that are on sports television and made me think about like how many of them also have like tomboy roots, right? Like <laughs> I'm sure some of them do. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them do. And, um, but I, I don't know if anybody did to the degree of men that I did. Okay. Fair. <laughs> but yeah, but, um, but, but some of them, but, but I do think media is kind of changing with that. Like, like yeah. I look at just style wise, what anchors are wearing now. And I think there's a general, and I don't know if it was brought on by the pandemic or it was just trending this way, but you know, wearing like jeans or sneakers on TV used to be considered a cardinal no, no, but I see it frequently now. Like the casual look is okay. I mean, some of it depends on like how you dress. I mean, people may not realize this, but sometimes with some shows or some networks, how you dress can sometimes be directly correlated to the type of show you're on and what time of day your show comes on. Because mm. in the morning, like, there's a different expectation when you're on a morning show. Like, people expect your morning anchor to be, you know, kind of um, jovial and happy and delivering right. you the news with a smile. So your right. personality demeanor has to be different. And so, you know, there's there's ways you can still be yourself within what is the audience expectation. I love this. I love this insight. Um, okay. One of the things we always talk about here is how you write. So how do you write? Where are you? How many hours a day? Is there music <laughs> or no? Are there snacks and beverages? Are there rituals, candles, bath time, yoga? Like set it up. Tell us how you write. So d- when I was writing this book in particular, um, I usually write in general, I'll say I usually write with something on the TV that is entertaining, but I don't have to pay attention to it. Okay. okay. I mean, I can go in and out like, oh, that's interesting that happened. And then go back to writing. <laughs> so I'm typically, uh, well, during writing this memoir, there was, uh, I had watched Grey's Anatomy years oh, ago. That's my favorite show. Oh, that <laughs> I'm The Bachelor. It. Those are my top that two. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched it years ago when it first came out. And so I was pretty hooked for like five or six seasons. And then, I just kind of lost track of it and, yeah, you know, it just wasn't a big deal anymore. I picked it back up. <laughs> All right. Because it was perfect. It was like, you know, it, it was very, it's very formulaic in a good way. And the formula is comforting. And so I wrote it. Uh, I, You know, I wrote to it. Young and the Restless, of course. I, but I always, I mean, Young and the Restless is my go-to for writing. Okay. Um, Because it's soap operas. And then every now and again, you look up and like, what? Such and such had a baby? And with such and such? <laughs> Wow. Okay, let me get back into this. So it's usually that and um, or another one. Well, actually, I had to stop watching it while writing because it was really absorbing too much of my attention. So I couldn't write and watch it. I got into This Is Us during this oh. during writing this book. And it just it 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 got so emotional. I was like, I cannot write and, and, do, and do this. I watched so I, like the first season and a half, and then I was like, I can't be here anymore. Like I like I just like had to, it was too much for me. But the storytelling so good, so good, and the the writing is so exceptional that it was, um, it was really excellent. But it it got to a point where that was too big of a distraction, <laughs> so I had to just wait and do that at another time. But 
you know, I, I believe change in, change of scenery helps writing. So uh, I, I often kind of rotate in different places in our house. I mean, there was a part when I was writing this book, we were not in the new house that we're in now. So we had a spare bedroom and I would write in there and just because, you know, we had Netflix and everything in the room. Just go to Grey's Anatomy, let that go roll, start, start, um, you know, writing whatever I need to write. And then, you know, that that's it. When we moved in the new house, it was even better because there were several rooms I could really rotate okay. to, you know. <laughs> there was, uh, we had, we actually, you know, I could go in our, our office or be in the living room or we have a very um, nice outdoor area. So we have a, a pool and a jacuzzi. So going out there to write mm. as well, like next to that. So believe in changes scenery and all of that snacks um you know i'm a i'm a chip person yeah when i write that's like you know something you can grab but other than that yeah that's that's pretty much it i mean i think what matters most is what i write to um television wise okay one of the things i i love food anytime anyone mentions food in their books or anything <laughs> it always piques my interest i just want to note this that you were a person who used to eat your steaks medium rare and you've switched over to medium and medium well and i'm just i've never heard that before everyone <laughs> i know has gone from well done to medium rare they've seen the light they're happy how did you go the reverse way i it's a well, nightmare for me <laughs> well what it was like my grandmother was a big believer in eating steaks medium and so i mean she just thought you were a heathen if you ate it well yes done, like that. that's me and i you eat it well done? <laughs> no, I think it's a heathen thing. Oh, I'm like oh, on the yeah. rare side. I'm medium rare on the rare side. Uh, yeah, you. something's <laughs> wrong with you. If you alive. Just, if you, I'm looking for alive cows. <laughs> alive cows. So I gravitated over because I noticed um, if you say medium well or medium plus, you get kind of right where it's supposed to be. Because I feel like if you tell... Um, uh, a chef like hey make this medium well they'll actually make it medium oh. so it's like so you go up so they'll come down <laughs> you know what so I, mean? I go down so that they'll stay down <laughs> right yeah i mean if i ask for it medium rare i mean i'm sure there'd be parts of the steak still quivering so it's like, right right you know what i mean and i'll, so I'll it's take like, it from you <laughs> yeah if i wanted a medium rare i would just ask for medium yeah i see <laughs> um so you have a podcast now Jamel Hill is unbothered. How does that compare for you for like from sports journalism writing things? Like, do you prepare differently? Are you thinking about things differently? Like, how are you approaching podcasting? I know you did it before. I know you did his and hers, but now you have your own show. What's that like? I, I mean, I put a lot of extensive research into it, um, just in, in terms of like trying to figure out, especially since I'm typically dealing with people who are big newsmakers, mm -hmm. you have to figure out a, a way and it's a challenge. And it's, it's, it's very thrilling for me to figure out a way to talk to them about something differently than they've been talked to about it before. You know, like, mm -hmm. you know, taking this interview, for example, as you said, like when you're on a, a book tour, like you're asked literally the same question 700 times. And so I appreciate this conversation because you've already asked me at least 10 questions I haven't been asked yet oh, on yes. this tour. <laughs> Dream. So, yeah. So I try to do the same thing. It's like not ask him the same question. And if I do have to ask a question, just because sometimes it just requires getting an answer, even if it's about the same thing, then I will ask them in such a different way that hopefully it leads to a different answer mm -hmm. and that comes through exhaustive research which for me includes I look at 
interviews of theirs in stages. Like, oh, what's the interview they may have given when they were just a couple years into their acting career? What's the interview? What did they sound like five years after that? What did they sound like 10 years ago? What did they sound like, you know, a couple months ago? Just to see what their evolution actually is. One of the big reasons I gravitated right into podcasting uh, after leaving ESPN is because I miss the intimacy of the interview. Mm. And when you're working in daily television, and even a lot of times when, you, when I was uh, writing for publications, you may have like five or 10 minutes with somebody. In TV, you don't even have that. You have like maybe a four minute segment with somebody. And being able to get an hour of somebody's time is not easy, but it, you know, it's worthwhile. And so I wanted to just sit down and just have these, you know, engaging, compelling conversations with people whose journey I think a lot of people wanted to hear about. So what I love about podcasting is that it just creates this intimacy between you and the interviewer. And so I think I'm able to get much better stuff than, you know, if I sat down and um, did like a TV interview with them. Yeah, that's what I like about it too. Um, I only have a few more questions, one of which I hope no one else has asked you before, which is what we ask everyone here. What is the word you cannot spell correctly on the first try? Oh, conscience. Conscience. <laughs> Impossible. That's a really hard one. I love okay. it. <laughs> Easy. Easy. Oh, and defibrillator. Can't spell that to save my life. Are you spelling it a lot? Does it come up for you a lot? I mean, defibrillator? It, whenever it comes up, I... <laughs> I promise you I have to look it up every single time. I'm like, is it D? I'm always missing something, missing some letter or I got too many L's. Like, it's always something. I'm a so. notoriously terrible speller. So every word people say, I'm always like, what? But defibrillator, has, I can't even say it. So I definitely can't spell it. I'm like, right. is there an R there somewhere? Like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, um, no, no, it's it's, <laughs> it's crazy how certain words, like, you're just blinded to and not just for, a, yeah. for the rest of your life. You're just like, I can't spell. Why do I not know how to spell conscience? I don't yeah. know. I can't spell recommendation and I can't tell you how many times I have to spell it because I'm always giving a book recommendation and I'm like, can't tell you, couldn't help. Um, okay, this is sort of like a sportsy moment, but not exactly. But you know, everyone in sports loves a ranking. What are the top five <laughs> sports stories of your lifetime to you? Oh, man. Um that's crazy. Uh, all right, I'm gonna just go with what uh, immediately go with what comes, comes to, to mind. Yeah, you can just go with um, LeBron James returning to Cleveland. Mm. Uh, LeBron James going to Miami. Okay, <laughs> you yes. Can, you can say that too. Uh, gosh, I know that I'm going to miss something so freaking obvious. Um, well, I mean, I would say that, you know, I'd put up in there maybe like the start of the WNBA just because mm. nobody ever imagined that there'd be like, a, a women's professional, like women's professional sports leagues generally haven't done well. Uh, Michael Jordan retiring and unretiring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, was, mm-hmm. that was definitely a big one. You know, you could definitely put the OJ Simpson story in there, but I was yeah. like, is that a sports story? Yeah, like, it is, that... I think. Aaron Hernandez. Oh Man. my gosh. Yeah. Oh so, my God, I forgot about that. Yeah. That um, was so huge. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, I mean, and I. Troubling. It, I was at ESPN, obviously, when that happened, and he's from Bristol, where ESPN is located. So right. to see the cops and the media attention swirling around Bristol, like it was, it was just so bizarre. But those are just some that that kind of um, 
come to mind. And I hope people realize the question you asked, you said in my lifetime. Yes. So I said, yeah, I know there have been much bigger stories, but yeah. Um, you know, like I, but I wasn't alive when Muhammad Ali decided not to go to the Vietnam right. war. <laughs> right. Last two questions. One of them I ask everyone also is for people who love your book uphill, what are some other books that you might recommend to them that are in conversation with your work? Uh, I would say Viola Davis's memoir. Mm, and so it, it's so very good. And I would encourage people to listen to the audiobook because yeah. she does it. Oh, it's incredible. Do you do your <laughs> audiobook? I did. I did my okay. audiobook. And I had to read your my... book before it had come out. So I wanted to listen, but I might go back and listen. <laughs> well, the um, the audiobook experience is very unique. I'll say yeah. that much. And uh, it took me a few weeks to do it because uh, there were some revisions and this and that. But it's, it's such a weird experience because if you hate the sound of your own voice as much as most most <laughs> yeah. people do, Whew. it's it can be very, uh, very grating. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I thought that the Viola's book was quite good. Another one that I didn't read this this year. Um, I read it last year I think it was was uh Yah Jesse's homecoming. Yeah. She is just oh man, uh really just a gifted writer. Mm -hmm. Oh I, that reminds me another book that I read and um I think I, it, this I read this book before the Viola Davis memoir Night Crawling by oh, Layla, uh, Layla Night Crawling Layla Motley. Like I Oakland. I mean <laughs> Oakland in a house like I cannot believe um, that she actually wrote that at such a young age. I that, know. that young woman is brilliant. I mean, that everybody I've recommended that book to has immediately hit me up and said, thank you, because it's so powerful. So yeah, yeah Nightcrawling was definitely well, one. Layla came on the show this year, and we had Yaw on in 2020. So both people who I love, whose work I love, but Layla's, she's, and she's so funny because she's like, I don't want you to think of me as exceptional. I'm just like every other... 16 year old writing a novel i'm like i'm like no, no you're, bitch, not. you're you exceptional exception okay exactly more people you can be exceptional but you also are that's what i told her i was like <laughs> yes. very sweet but let me tell you as your as your elder you're exceptional <laughs> keep it up um last question for you if you could have any person dead or alive read this book who would you want it to be wow what a question <laughs> <laughs> Just um, well maybe it would be and this is always dangerous to do. It's like, you don't want to have the person. Um, it's, it's dangerous because if you have the person to read your book who maybe changed your life or something about you because of something they wrote, that's a pretty high bar. And if they don't mm -hmm. like it, then mm -hmm. I'd just be forced to to cry and and <laughs> in, a, <laughs> in, a, in a puddle of my own insecurities in the fetal position. So, but I'm going to say Nora Zill Hurston because... Mm -hmm. Um, their Eyes Were Watching God is probably my favorite book of all time. Oh, and she, during the pandemic, I mean, I've read this book a few times, like at least four or five times, but I never listened to the audiobook, And I was mm. very curious as to what it was like and, and everything. I, I believe it was Ruby D who did her audiobook, And it was exceptional. So, yeah, I would have her read it and just pray she like it. 
<laughs> yeah, I love that answer. All right, folks, Jamel's out of here. But first, let me remind you, the book is called Uphill. You can get it wherever you get your books, audiobook, physical, ebook. Also, you can find Jamel on her podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, which is on Spotify. And she writes for The Atlantic, a subscription that I highly value. One of my favorite places. I get the print and everything. Love it so much. It's where all the smarties go. So if you want smart sports things, find Jamel over there. Jamel, thank you so, 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 so much. Well, thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, of course, to Jamel Hill for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Carolyn O'Keefe for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for November is Prison by Any Other Name by Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law, which we will discuss on November 30th with Miriam Kaba. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head over to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tegiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. I hate to break this to you, but the holidays are coming up and it's time to start thinking about gifts. I know. What the hell? I personally want to avoid the boring, basic, and bland. My loved ones deserve extra thought and care this year because this year has been a dumpster fire. So I'm turning to Uncommon Goods to help me find interesting, exciting gifts for the people I love the most. They've scoured the globe to find thousands of unique, meaningful items that you can't find anywhere else. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade. We all know I love my shower steamers and bath bombs, but they also have tons of items for your kitchen, bar, your jewelry box, and even your art collection. Check out their stocking stuffers. They've got books, holiday decorations. You won't run out of great finds on their site. There's truly something for everyone on your list. Shopping at Uncommon Goods means you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. Yay. Heads up, their products are often made in small batches, so make sure you head there now before they sell out of everything good for the holiday season. With every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So maybe, since it's for a good cause, I'll add something to the cart for myself. You know, just to be a good person. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash the stacks. That's uncommongoods.com slash the stacks for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary.